electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, stocks are rallying on some easing geopolitical tensions. Despite the move higher, the Nasdaq still more than 13% off the all-time high. This hour, we're going to look at one sector in particular that's been badly beaten down, talk about what buying opportunities may lie ahead. We'll talk with the CEO of Arista Network, spiking on results, plus the CEO of F5 joins us as they focus on cloud security. And finally, Intel continues its spree of acquisitions. We'll get more on this final. $5.4 billion deal, D, for Tower Semi. And Carl, we're going to start with the markets. Look at what names are leading the NASDAQ higher this morning as it outperforms. Dom Chu with that. Over to you, Dom. Very much a NASDAQ-focused trade today because it is an outperformer. It often is the most volatile part of the market. But Carl mentioned that 13% drop from the record highs that we are still at right now. And just to kind of put it in visual context, from those highs, this is what down 13% looks like overall. We are still below some of the longer averages or trend lines for the NASDAQ, but still trying to find some kind of a base. We'll see if it lasts. Within that particular trade, the S&P 500 technology sector overall is still down roughly 11% from the record highs that we've seen over the course of the past couple of months here. What's notable about today's trade, though, is with this move higher by about 2%, this particular sector is now above its 200-day average price on a rolling basis. So, Technology, a big focus there. Within that technology sector, as we drilled down a little bit more, three focal points for many traders in that tech trade have been with the semiconductors, as you point out, also financial technology stocks and social media as well. They've been a lot of the epicenter around the volatility, especially to the downside that we've seen among these three ETFs that track semiconductors, financial technology stocks and social media. Only the semiconductor index ETF is actually up roughly 8% over the past 12 months. Both of these, fintech and social media, are down roughly 37 to 38% over the course of the past year, just to give you an idea of how much downside damage there has been. And, of course, what's happening with the big mega-cap technology and communication services-related type stocks? Well, watch what's happening in the trade today with Apple up about 1.5%, Microsoft up 1.5%, Alphabet up about 1% as well, and then Amazon, the underperformer, only up about one-third of 1%, and Tesla up 4.5%. This is where a lot of the shopping lists, John, have tilted as things have pulled back a little bit. So whether or not that big tech trade still plays out, that's going to be key, and of course, key for not just the NASDAQ, but the S&P 500 as well, John. All right, Dom, keeping our eye on that. Meanwhile, checking in on the state of cloud also, which is mostly enterprise software. The sector is slightly up this morning, but has suffered as of late, losing about a third of its value just three months after reaching all-time highs. Uh, security names are among those hit the hardest, including Cloudflare, Okta, and ServiceNow. 
Today, though, we will take a closer look at infrastructure-related plays in the cloud space. Data center networking firm uh, Arista Networks, the stock has risen nearly two-thirds over the past 12 months. Also, cloud security and app delivery company F5, not as fortunate, down about 6% over the same period. Both CEOs join us later this hour. F5's CEO with News D. This is, I mean, we've talked about it a bit lately. Cloud, I mean... We still use the term, but um, the meaning is a little iffy. Are we talking about software as a service? Are we chips now are an important play yeah. in the cloud as well? Uh, but you know, it, it's all enterprise software. If you're enterprise software and you're not in the cloud now, what are you doing? <laughs> It's like the new tech. Everyone's a cloud company. Everyone's a tech company. Uh, two bright spots, though, in the earnings season, right, Carl? There was Datadog and Twilio, and I know there was a note from, I believe it was Mizuho, saying that um, they kind of are reminding investors of the fundamentals behind some of the beaten-down names. I know we pointed to a few other ones of them, but they could bring greater, greater confidence back to that small and mid-sized sector of this market. Um, of course, that's going to rest largely on some of the names that we still have coming up. Remember, Zoom and DocuSign are going to be really key for how this the space of the market trades going forward yep. and what the valuation uh, Obviously, valuation, like. the valuation reset's been a big part of that story. And then sort of the big macro uh, waves, D, you got uh, maybe we'll see some moderation in the, in the wave of new business creation as we sort of exit what we think is going to be uh, the end of COVID. Um, and obviously uh, the ongoing just move to digitize everything to manage your supply chains, and your employees and everything else. Yep. That's uh, a great Topic to get to with Bessemer Venture Partners Emerging Cloud, uh, our next guest. That Emerging Cloud Index is also down 15% year-to-date. Joining us for more on the cloud space, Bessemer's Byron Dieter. Byron, I want to start with something that you tweeted just a few days ago. You said that you were hearing rumors that, quote, the cloud is full, meaning that the chip shortage may actually be hitting some of the infrastructure behind the cloud and this trend of digitization. That would be a big deal. What did you find out? Right. Well, the demand continues to surge and great to be back here, especially on a green day in a very choppy three months. So thank you for having me. Um, and we are seeing some limited spots where the chip shortage is rolling through to this industry, specifically right now, GPUs, which are the graphical processor units or the high end chipsets that people use for artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, and also crypto mining, um, in some cases are seeing that backlog build and some of the availability zones in, in the Azure IS zones um, and some others are having you know, difficulty in provisioning because of the backlog. Uh, it's not yet more widespread. And obviously one of the benefits mm -hmm. of cloud and the IaaS layer is infinite scalability. And so this would be a major story if we see more backlog build. Um, but right now we're seeing it in very specific areas and the demand surge that we see is continuing, which is of course putting that upper supply chain pressure on. All right, so Byron, which companies are best positioned to deal with it if we do see this start to become a problem, more intense shortages? Uh, you know, the tech giants obviously are big players in this. Are there some other companies perhaps under the radar that could deal with the specific areas you're mentioning? So uh, I think there's two pieces to that. One is uh, which companies specifically, uh, as you see these uh, potential supply chain surges, certainly those would, um, with the large IaaS buys, including potentially some alternate clouds, um, or you could see workloads rotate to CPUs as, as opposed to GPUs on the margin. Um, but I think the more general trends that we're seeing also go to efficient businesses in this broader tech rotation that you've been talking about and we've been witnessing for the last 90 or so days. 
overall businesses right now that are able to scale efficiently are the ones that are being rewarded. And we're seeing this trade-off where people were in a growth at all cost mindset uh, as recently as three months ago, have very much now oriented towards efficient growers. And we're seeing pressure on um, the fundamentals of the business and free cash flow ultimately um, is going to be uh, is going to become an equal weight to growth. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, in a world we're exiting sort of a period where, uh, you, you know, we were shooting way down the field for for a touchdown. Now it's much more about short term tactical moves, maintaining your cash flow, not letting cash burn go too high. What is there? A, is there a new magic metric for the whole space right now, Byron? Well, if you do a regression on the multiples, what you used to see was this two to one uh, willingness to pay for growth versus free cash flow or net income, that's moved back to about one-to-one. So in our world, we think of these efficiency metrics in which dials are being rewarded. People with the interest rate concerns are less willing to bet on forward free cash flows and future growth. They want to see it now. And so ultimately, these these businesses that are able to scale while generating free cash flow, uh, and in the cloud world, it's companies like Zscaler, Atlassian, um, Datadog, CrowdStrike, companies like that that are generating 20 to 40% cash flow margins while still growing at pretty impressive rates. Those are the ones that have been a little more um, resistant to this pullback, whereas some of the high flyers uh, like the C3AIs and the Asanas and the Fastly's have pulled back you know, 50% plus from their highs uh, over the last year as people are now in this mindset of show us the money and we want to see quick returns on those investments and we're less willing to give you two, three, four years for payback or for ultimate profitability. Yeah, Byron, morning. It's John. Uh, You say it's nice to join us on a green day because uh, up to this point, it's been mostly a boulevard of broken dreams. Uh, I want to ask you about margins when it comes to uh, the cloud and and on the infrastructure side a bit, too. Um, Talking to Marvell recently, they've made the argument that even though a lot of their uh, product goes into the hyperscalers, They've got such visibility because they're sending so much chip business in there that they're able to maintain margins, keep from getting priced out. Uh, When we look at Arista also increasing its presence with some pretty large players, as well as some other uh, companies in the space in general, dealing more with the hyperscalers, what is the impact on margins? Yes, well, uh, thank you for for diving into it because there's this entire economy that I would call cloud-adjacent or hybrid cloud, including F5 and Arista, that aren't pure cloud businesses themselves, but are betting on and benefiting from these massive trends that we're seeing in the market. And one of the surprising things has been the margin profile that's available for everyone in this sector. Um, Amazon, first and foremost, when they got into the infrastructure as a service business, there was this expectation that the raw commodity products uh, you know, storage and compute starting at the base layers were going to be commoditized to near zero and that they were doing it for the upper stack capabilities. But as we saw in their earnings recently, um, both Amazon and Google pulled away from the Facebooks and, and Netflix of the world um, on strong earnings prints, largely because of their cloud businesses. And in the Amazon case, the entire earnings of the business is now driven by the cloud business, which fundamentally is an infrastructure property. We're seeing that in adjacent businesses as well. A number of the IPOs of last year and over the last 18 months, you know, certainly Snowflake and HashiCorp, two among them, are powerful infrastructure businesses that are showing immense uh, j- gross margin capabilities and ultimately free cash flow capabilities. And I think that's been one of the pleasant surprises of this wave is the profit potential of these infrastructure mm-hmm. providers. 
Byron, I'm so glad that you touch on this sort of changing landscape, especially in the wake of earnings and these valuation re-ratings that we've been seeing. You know, you've come on and talked a lot about Mount SAS, which is sort of a different basket that includes some of the big tech stalwarts, some of the higher hyper growth names. Um, how are you viewing this basket now, especially in the wake of this changing landscape? Are you taking a second look or do you think that it's mostly turned out OK after the last volatile few months? Well, it's been a brutal, brutal three months for the industry. And so this basket has been hit, uh, as has hypergrowth tech and certainly cloud specifically. Uh, the macro trends remain strong. And I do feel like we're sort of fumbling our way towards bottom right now. The, the traders have certainly beaten the investors in the short term. And this volatility where you see you know, 5% plus swings in any given name with no news within a day um, has certainly uh, caused some folks some anxiety. But if you close your eyes and think ahead a few years, these trends remain. The, the move to cloud, the digital transformation that we're seeing, so much of the big data opportunity and the AI uh, machine learning opportunity is front and center. The percentage of GDP that is tech-based is only going to increase. And therefore, right now, it's just a multiple question. These businesses mm -hmm. are delivering um, on their results. They are building value. And over time, they will be rewarded. We've fallen from you know, mid-20s. Uh, sales multiples down to mid-teens sales multiples. And I certainly think there's a lot more upside than downside from mm -hmm. here. I'm not ready to call full bottom, but it certainly feels like we're close to it. Okay. And you're sticking by it. Byron, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Byron. Always Deidre. a pleasure. Thank you, Deidre. Let's shift to Intel this morning, continuing its buying spree. This morning, agreeing to a deal to acquire Tower Semi for nearly $5.5 billion. Intel is paying up 53 a share, 60% premium to where the stock was trading. Acquisition further cements their ambitions to bolster the foundry business, a strategy that some investors have remained critical of. Right now, Intel's market cap just under $200 billion. In January, the company announced plans to spend $20 billion on that Ohio plant and has pledged investments of more than $100 billion over the next 10 years. Uh, John, we talked with Kramer about it this morning. He likes this deal, but, it, you know, I think we acknowledge they've got engineering and production challenges, and now a lot of portfolio management's a lot to juggle. <laughs> yeah, but that's the game, isn't it? I mean, it, being where Intel was, uh, there are very few uh, credible paths to recovery and, and thriving. Pat Gelsinger has articulated one that he believes uh, will work, and uh, you, you can either buy it or not. You know, there are analysts out there who are saying, well, we're skeptical of the foundry strategy. But I think very often they don't articulate, D, what other choice Intel has to build up the capacity and manufacturing they need for their own product, but mm -hmm. also be flexible in an environment where you can no longer say, hey, any flavor of x86 you want, because as we were just talking to Byron Dieter about it, there are hyperscalers out there who are saying, mm -hmm. we don't want to take what's off the shelf. We want custom stuff. And by the way, there are other companies out there who need foundry services. So if you want yeah. to be a cutting edge manufacturer with leading edge nodes, you pretty much have to do foundry at this point, if not as your only business, as part of your business. It's still a bold and expensive move. And I guess, John, the question is, how do they do it if this strategy is now moving forward? And Evercore's takeaway was that this seems like a low-quality way of doing so. Um, and, you know, Intel was also looking at global foundries before. So I guess, John, I would ask you, what's out there? Is there sort of a right or wrong way of doing this? Obviously, this takes many years, so it's hard to tell. But why would Evercore, you know, come out and say that this is a low-quality way of doing it? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't work for Evercore. I don't think global foundries make sense for Intel because it's not leading edge node. And that's where Intel needs to be. So I'm not sure they were ever seriously looking at that, Carl. But 
I mean, it's, you know, you place your bets that maybe, maybe Intel can't figure it out. Maybe the stock falls apart, or, or maybe they can. And if so, then this is another brick in the wall, as the old song says. Yeah, uh, we're looking at some of these 13Fs uh, and uh, Einhorn and Greenlight. Definitely Intel has some of their attention, so we'll be watching that as the company evolves. And by the way, we'll uh, hear from Gelsinger later in the week at the analyst meeting. We're going to continue to watch the markets. NASDAQ here, just shy of a 2% gain for the day. And the CEO of Arista Networks is next. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Let's turn now to Arista Networks, the software firm's latest earnings beating while posting revenue of nearly $825 million in Q4 and some upbeat guidance for the quarter ahead. Shares getting a boost this morning on those results. Joining us exclusively this morning is uh, Arista Networks CEO Jayshree Ulal. Uh, Jayshree, great to have you back. Talk to me about wh- what led you to the guidance you gave. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. Um... Uh, it's, uh, it's a very different Arista. We're in our second phase of growth. And as you know, the pandemic um, had an effect on all of us and it slowed us down. But what we're now seeing is a combination of great cloud strength, uh, enterprise diversification, and the post-pandemic era where our customers want to invest more and Arista is becoming a strategic part of their investment. Talk to me about, a bit about customer mix and geographic mix. Uh, what's changing and, and, and why do you think? If you look at uh, uh, Arista historically, we've very much been focused domestically. Majority, almost 80% of our business came, came from the United States. Um, Arista's made some strong in investments internationally, and if you look at our last quarter, 70% was still the U.S., but 30% was international, which is our strongest um, momentum internationally with a growth of 40-plus percent year over year. Uh, so this has been really nice to watch, and many of that comes from regional strength, but also our cloud titans who invest internationally as part of that. And so that's been very, very nice to watch as well. Uh, Jayshree, how, how are you managing the potential margin impact 
of having more business with cloud titans. Big customers usually can put pressure on their suppliers uh, to, to lower prices. So um, from an innovation perspective, from a portfolio perspective, how do you plan to manage it? I, I think you hit the nail here. Innovation is a key part of our differentiation, and our customers appreciate that while uh, there's a lot of pricing pressure, that Arista has one of the best software stacks, one of the best management platforms, programmability, quality support, and they're willing to pay for that because the cost of a downtime is millions of dollars. So there is a premium that Arista is given for the superior platform we have. At the same time, you're right, we have the pressures of gross margin due to the really uh, uh, increased cost due to the supply chain, as well as the mix of the Cloud Titans. So it's definitely a balance, and as our Cloud Titan mix gets higher, it will pressure our gross margins a bit more. Hey, Jay Shree, it's Deirdre. I wanted to uh, ask you about our discussion earlier on in the program with Byron Dieter. He was talking about um, perhaps the cloud, the chip shortage, excuse me, hitting cloud infrastructure, data centers. Are you seeing anything on your side? Oh, yeah, we're part of that, too. Um, you know, the cloud is a wonderful thing, and we're delighted with the growth, and Arista has been a longtime pioneer of cloud networking. Um, they're scaling their data centers, uh, the whole applications of meta, with inference, AI, these virtual reality, real reality, gaming. These are all very much the future of why our cloud customers, our cloud titans, as we call them, are investing in us. However, um, you know, the forecast for the visibility for these uh, uh, requirements used to be one or two quarters. And when they came to us with these requests, the supply chain lead times on some of our components is one year. So there was a huge gap and huge mismatch between uh, what was required and what we could do. Add to that some of the Omicron shortages. We really took two steps forward, one step backward. Omicron also brought delays on several components that used to be in weeks, now went into 50 weeks, 70 weeks. So um, the supply chain, not only on the component side, but freight shortages, logistic shortages, labor shortages, has been quite a challenge for the entire industry, and uh, we certainly haven't been immune to it. Uh, I don't think any industry really is. Uh, it's definitely affecting uh, across the board, uh, corporates of all kinds. Jay Shree, appreciate it very much. Uh, shares up better than 7%. Going to take you back to early January. Good to see you again. Thanks. Meantime, we're getting some Super Bowl ratings. Uh, Julia has that. Julia? Well, about 112 million people watch the Super Bowl on NBC and on related streaming services. This is according to Nielsen, as well as NBC, which is, of course, CNBC's sister company. Now, that $112 million is a roughly 14% increase over last year. Looking just at linear TV, there were over 100 million people who watched, 99.2 million viewers on NBC alone, plus nearly 2 million viewers on Telemundo, plus an additional 11.2 million viewers watched on streaming platforms, which does include Peacock. So we're seeing increasing streaming and also an increase in viewership over last year. Guys, back over to you. Julia, any sense yet of the read-through for advertising sort of versus expectations and how much of that viewership might have stayed around after the Super Bowl uh, to view uh, Olympics, which is certainly what NBC wanted people to do, but I'm not sure it's what people always do. 
Well, it's certainly what NBC wanted. There were lots of promos in there, lots of promos for Peacock as well as the Olympics coverage. So we're still waiting for more granular detail. And actually, Don, we're going to get some great data on on whether there were an additional boost in signups for Peacock. We're waiting for that data later this week. But I do think that this boost in viewership is very much what was anticipated. These numbers are in line, for instance, with what Variety projected for the ratings for for this uh, for this big game. But I think what's really important to note here, John, is that obviously it was a huge season for football, but overall TV ratings have been declining. So this increase um, in, in ratings for for the NFL is in line with what we've seen, especially in the playoffs for the NFL. But is makes makes that viewership even more valuable than ever at a time when more people are are spending time watching streaming content. Yeah, close game probably didn't help down to the final minutes. Julia, thanks. After the break, crypto company BlockFi paying a record one hundred million dollar fine for subtle claims it violated investor protection laws. CEO Zach Prince joins us next on how the company's moving forward. Tech Check, back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. Facebook giving an update on the impact that iOS privacy changes are having on ad performance. Julia is going to have that story in just a minute after a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Producer prices shot up 1% in January. That is double what economists were expecting. Over the last year, wholesale inflation is up 9.7%, only a tenth of a point below the record level set in November and December. A surge in holiday season bookings, helping Marriott shares rise more than 5%. Top and bottom line results were well ahead of estimates. And revenues more than doubled year-ago figures. Virgin Galactic once again taking reservations for flights into space. The price is $450,000 a seat with a deposit of $150,000. Virgin Galactic shares are up 20% on the news, but the stock is still down more than 80% over the last year. And MoneyGram going private in a $1 billion cash deal. Private equity firm Madison Dearborn will pay $11 a share. Shares of MoneyGram are up 18% today and about 50% since the first reports of a possible buyout about two months ago. You're now up to date. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. 
Rahel, thank you. Crypto startup BlockFi has agreed to pay $100 million to the SEC in 32 states to settle charges against its retail crypto lending product. The SEC saying the company illegally operated for 18 months as an investment company. Now BlockFi is applying to register with the SEC to offer a new crypto savings product called BlockFi Yield. What does it all mean for the future of DeFi lending? Joining us now to discuss BlockFi, co-founder and CEO Zach Prince. Zach, it's great to have you with us. I want to talk a little bit about this product that you guys have been selling. Um, you've been able to pay yields of 8% or more on some crypto, and you do this by lending it out to institutional investors. What do you take from those investors on the back end as collateral? How do you make sure that BlockFi is protecting its users that are lending out their crypto? Yeah, hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, we, we have a lot of information on our, on our website about risk management uh, and what types of collateral we take from institutional borrowers. But I want to give folks a bit, a bit of a context. Can you explain that how, to us, to our viewers uh, who may not know, what kind of collateral? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's liquid collateral, which could be cash, cryptocurrencies, or uh, publicly traded uh, securities, um, like shares in some of the listed products. But in case anyone isn't familiar with BlockFi, we're, we're a four and a half year old company with 850 people based in the US. Um, the settlement announced yesterday is related just to our BlockFi interest account product, which is one out of six retail facing products we have. And it's one of our most popular products because it offers an attractive yield on cryptocurrencies and stable coins at a time where inflation is running high, as you just mentioned, and yield is hard to come by. Um, consumers around the globe have benefited tremendously from this product, which has paid out over $700 million in interest to BlockFi clients to date, including CNBC's own Jim Cramer, who has mentioned us a few times on air. Thank you, uh, Jim, for that. Um, so look, there's two key things from the settlement that I think are really important for folks to know. One is that this is a neither admit nor deny settlement. BlockFi cooperated with regulators throughout. We have a long history of compliance and working with regulators, and this is another example of that. And two, the settlement lays out a path to registration of a crypto interest-bearing security, which we believe will be a win not only for BlockFi, but for the broader cryptocurrency sector mm -hmm. because of the regulatory clarity that it provides. Right. And you're going to have to sort of jump through some regulatory hoops to even get that product on the market. But as you said, the existing one has been one of your most popular. And now that you can't provide new interest accounts or even grow existing ones, what's your business, Zach? Why would users keep their money with BlockFi versus moving it somewhere else with a higher yield and add to it in a different jurisdiction? Where I guess I'm getting to is also where does this leave U.S. companies like yours in yeah, sure. a well, competitive position? Yeah. So look, first, let's be clear about one thing. This settlement does not impact our existing clients' ability to earn interest. For folks that already have a BlockFi interest account, you will continue earning interest as you always have on our platform. Additionally, for you know someone that doesn't have a BlockFi account today, you can still access five other products on our retail-facing platform. Cryptocurrency trading, a credit card product that earns Bitcoin rewards, loans, our BlockFi wallet, and a personalized yield product, which is available to high net worth uh, individuals. Um, outside the U.S. Uh, and for our institutional clients on our BlockFi Prime platform, there's no changes whatsoever uh, as part of this yeah. you know, settlement and registration process. Um, but but yes, during the registration process, we will pause accepting new clients for the interest account. Uh, but once the registration process is complete, we'll reopen. And we think there's a good chance we're going to be a first mover in that regard. How do you make sure, though, that you continue to keep those customers? I know this doesn't affect existing customers who already have money in, but they can't add to that pile. And, you know, I've talked to a few people already who have switched to other platforms like Celsius. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, our clients use a variety of products uh, on our platform. 
they're able to still deposit funds today and use BlockFi Wallet. Uh, and, and they like working with BlockFi for the reasons that you know they always have, which is we have a diversified suite of products. You can do more on BlockFi's platform in terms of cryptocurrency financial services than you can anywhere else in the industry. We also have the best client service in the industry where you can call folks. We were the first company with a phone number uh, for our client service team. You can call folks, speak to educated people uh, about our platform and the broader industry. Um, and we have this personalized yield product where folks could you know, deposit new money today on an individually negotiated basis and earn interest. Um, so we see a lot of growth from across our product suite. And, uh, and we think that our clients are going to be supportive of our platform throughout the registration process and beyond. Hey, Zach, um, tax policy. Uh, we're starting to get a better sense of how the IRS views income related to crypto. Is any of that a surprise? Are they being surprisingly aggressive or passive in any way? Or is it pretty much what you think investors nor- expected the agency eventually to come around and do? Uh, it seems relatively you know, middle of the fairway to me. Look, if you're, if you're earning interest on something, uh, it counts as income, whether that's you know, cryptocurrency denominated interest or uh, interest maybe from like staking or some of the other you know products that are available in the cryptocurrency space if you make a capital gain from buying something and selling it at a higher price later or a capital loss that has very clear tax implications and in, in my view the IRS has been you know somewhat of a leader across the regulatory complex uh, if I recall correctly they you know initiated their first guidance on cryptocurrency taxes uh, well before any other regulatory agency had, had issued guidance. Hey, Zach, last question for you. A number of stablecoins are available on the BlockFi uh, platform, including Tether, Circle, BUSD. Uh, They do offer also some of the highest yields on the platform. What should investors know about the risks of stablecoins? Yeah, well, the stablecoins that we support on BlockFi for our U.S. clients are are all the stablecoins of, you know, kind of the highest the, the highest regard in terms of their infrastructure and their regulatory standing and their their banking connectivity. So you can, you know, deposit uh, dollars or stable coins to our platform and then withdraw dollars or stable coins uh, from our platform. And um, I think that what folks should know about the risks of having stable coins is not really different than the risks of having Bitcoin in our interest account product or other products. And I would encourage folks to, you know, read the pages should- on our website where we talk about risk management. Go ahead. Should stablecoins be regulated like money market funds if your interest product is going to be regulated? Um, look, I think I don't want to comment uh, on stablecoins in particular and how they should be regulated. I would say that I agree with some of the comments that have been made by folks like Jeremy Allaire at uh, you know, some of the hearings recently. There, there is a framework that we use for things like PayPal and Square and the Cash App where you have kind of like a digital dollar on, on a platform. And uh, I think stable coins can fit pretty neatly within those existing regulatory frameworks. Um, but I also would highlight for folks that I, I think stable coins represent a tremendous opportunity uh, for the U.S. to advance its interests in uh, the dollar standing as a global reserve currency, because using these stable coin payment rails, we can get much better distribution for dollars. People all around the world want dollars. And uh increasing access and increasing demand to dollars is great for for all of us here in America. It's certainly been an important tool for the crypto markets. Zach Prince, thank you very much. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. We've got a little drama on the Hill regarding those Fed nominees. Elon Moy's got that story for us. Hi, Elon. 
Well, Carl, Republicans are saying that they plan to boycott a committee vote to advance President Biden's nominees to the Federal Reserve, citing concerns in particular about Sarah Bloom Raskin as vice chair for supervision. Now, this committee is evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. It needs a majority in order to vote. So that means if Republicans do not attend, that none of the nominees can move forward to final confirmation on the Senate floor. Now, the ranking Republican Senator Pat Toomey just spoke to reporters a few minutes ago. He said that he is willing to advance the other nominees if Democrats hold back Raskin's nomination. He said that he is concerned in particular about the master trust that a bank she's affiliated with received from the Kansas City Fed, and he feels that she has not answered the committee's questions and Republicans' questions adequately. Uh, so now the ball here is in Democrats' court to see how they will proceed. But as of now, Republicans planning to boycott the committee vote on Fed nominees this afternoon. We'll have to see how Democrats get around that roadblock. Guys? Uh, really quick, Elon, I'm just trying to keep, keep track of Toomey's complaints. You mentioned some of these concerns about potential conflicts, but in the past, he's talked about Raskin and been critical of her view on climate. Is it a combination of all of those things, and are they widely shared? Uh, well, certainly Republicans um, are unlikely to support her nomination, even if they uh, were to have that vote on it. They can always vote no. That is what uh, the Democrats say. Uh, but in this case, he says they simply have questions that have yet to be answered. And until they get the, those answers, they do not want to proceed with even a consideration of her nomination. All right, Elon, thank you. Now, as we head to break, let's get a check on the top performers on the NASDAQ 100. Chips are leading the way this morning. NVIDIA, Marvell, Micron, way up there. Tech Check continues after this. Facebook giving an update on the impact iOS privacy changes are having on ad performance. Julia Borston has the info. Hey, Julia. Well, John, Meta announcing that it's made progress on measuring ads impact. This is just about two weeks after Meta's earnings revealed dramatically slowing growth, in part thanks to Apple's operating system update, which limits Facebook's ability to both target ads and measure the impact of ads. Meta's stock declined by about 35% since earnings, wiping out over $230 billion in market cap as the company guided for slowing revenue growth of between 3% and 11% in the first quarter. But yesterday afternoon, Meta announced that it's making progress on ad measurement, saying that average underreporting of ads impact is now 8%. That's about half the 15% average underreporting that the company announced last year. Meta attributing that progress to advertisers adopting recommended best practices and saying they have more strategies to deploy, including AI-driven automated ad campaigns. But Meta also warned that they do expect some level of underreporting to remain as part of the new baseline. Guggenheim's Michael Morris telling us, quote, progress on measurement has yet to have a positive impact on advertising trends. He says, I expect Apple's privacy changes to impact Facebook's performance by the same amount in the first half of 2022 as it did in the back half of 2021. Just because the measurement is improving doesn't necessarily mean the company's ability to target has improved. Facebook is coming off very high level of targeting power, he noted, so the decline is particularly felt by Meta compared to some of the other players, guys. Julia, that was that was fast. Uh, and to me, it seems like 
for, for those people who wondered if Facebook was aiming for a kitchen sink quarter here where they just flushed out a whole lot of bad news and mentioned TikTok a whole bunch of times. But really, that, that $10 billion revenue headwind that they mentioned might have been an overstatement. M- might this add some fuel to those who think that it really was kitchen well, sink and maybe they can do better? Well, what Michael Morris told us was that, look, there are two pieces of this equation. There's the actual targeting itself, and then there's the measurement of how well the targeting is working. He's saying the targeting is getting better, but they're not seeing the actual ad revenue from, I mean, he's saying the measurement is getting revenue, getting better, but they're not seeing the actual improvement in the targeting have a real impact on the revenue just yet. He's saying that they sort of expected this kind of improvement in measurement, but the fact that we're not seeing better revenue guideline guidelines for this quarter indicates it's going to take a while to really work through these issues. So they have the tools, they're working on it, but this is a big issue that Facebook still needs to plow through. Yeah, sounds like it's a mix of engineering and a bit of arm twisting when it comes to clients. Uh, It's going to be fascinating to watch. Julia, thanks. Uh, Julia Borston. As we go to break, let's get a check on Tesla today. According to a filing, Elon Musk owns 21.2% of shares as of the end of the year, but he also wasn't afraid to give some of that away. In 2021, donating $5.7 billion of stock to charity. That should help set off some of his tax bill as well. Shares bouncing off of yesterday's 850 back to 919. Time for a gut check into it in the red this morning after lowering its current quarter forecast. As tax season gets off to a bit of a slower start, but the home of TurboTax, uh, QuickBooks, and Credit Karma still maintaining the full-year forecast. They believe it's on track to meet its $12.3 billion revenue goal, expecting to make up that lost ground later in the year. Stock's down 18% since January. Still no sell ratings on the street, John, and maybe it is just a bit of a push into uh, Q3, Q4. Not uncommon. Uh, to to see this happen during tax season. So that wouldn't be a surprise. Now let's get back to the, well, cloud sector, uh, enterprise software and related things. Today, F5 announcing a new security solution to strengthen protection of the digital world. According to the company, 88% of organizations operate both legacy and modern systems, increasing the need for protection platforms like this one. Joining us now to discuss, F5 CEO Francois Locodanu. Uh, Francois, uh, gl- glad to have you. It's not just a security thing, though. You're announcing distributed cloud services today. Um, I- explain how this is different from what you've been doing in the past. John, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, you know, the, the challenge of uh, cybersecurity has only been growing uh, stronger. You know, even during the pandemic. Uh, it's costing business hundreds of billions of dollars. It's affecting the lives of uh, a lot of people, I'm sure you know folks who have had money stolen out of the bank accounts. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we've had hundreds of thousands of people, uh, you know, who have filed complaints because their identity has been stolen to claim uh, government benefits. So it's a real issue affecting a lot of people. We uh, at FI, we've been on a mission, uh, you know, to bring a better and a safer digital world uh, to life. And today we are announcing a major expansion of our uh, security portfolio. Uh, really making it easier for thousands of businesses uh, around the world to secure their applications in any cloud. What we're seeing is, you know, more and more businesses around the world are deploying apps all over because it's central to their customers' digital lives. 
but uh, securing these apps is quite complex, and we're making that easier with today's announcement. Now, in your most recent quarter, supply issues hit you as well. When you're planning your strategy here on out, I know you're trying to make adjustments and, and be able to work with the chips available, but how does this software platform approach uh, position F5 overall into the future? Well, the, the, the software approach, uh, you know, positions us extraordinarily well for where, you know, applications are being built, where they're being deployed. Uh, and, you know, especially in the post-pandemic era, John, uh, you know, applications and digital experiences have become our way of life. You know, it's the way we shop, the way we bank, the way we collaborate. Uh, but what we're seeing is more and more these modern applications are being built not just in a single cloud or a single private data center, but in multiple public clouds, multiple private uh, uh, data centers or private clouds. And today's distributed cloud announcement we're making is really providing our security stack in all of these environments. So it makes uh, F5 quite unique in our ability to really secure any application anywhere, regardless of where, uh, where it resides. And we think increasingly that's what you're going to see, distributed applications secured in any environment. Hey, Francois, I don't mean this to be uh, sound glib, but I wonder, we, we've been spending so much time talking about IT shortages. What do you think resolves sooner, IT shortages in labor or IT shortages in, in goods and hardware? Uh, you know, I think, I think probably labor resolves uh, sooner, certainly in terms of the logistical challenges that have affected the, the supply chain, I think those resolve sooner. The, the heightened demand for IT skills is going to continue to go on, I think, for you know, many years. Uh, and in cybersecurity in particular, you know, there are over 3 million uh, unfilled jobs globally in the cybersecurity space. I don't think that's going to resolve uh, you know, anytime soon. So we really need to bring more skills into the industry. Uh, but in terms of the, you know, the chip shortages, uh, I think that's going to take, uh, you know, a few more quarters for, for folks to build the capacity and things to ease up. Francois, do you have an expectation or even a range uh, that, that you can articulate on the impact of rising interest rates on demand in the cloud and demand for, uh, for technology in general, right? Because uh, for inflation to come down, a lot of people would argue it's not just about raising the rates itself. It's about actually bringing demand down a bit. Um, will technology and, and even enterprise technology, you expect experience some of that? I, I don't think so. Uh, and the, the fundamental reason for, for that is that I think that the way we work, the way we live, the way we bank, uh, all of these things have fundamentally changed over the last several years. And the pandemic has only accelerated that. And so the demand for digital experiences uh, you know, ha has grown and is going to continue to grow. And I think that demand is going to grow independent of uh, what happens with interest rates because so much of our lives is shifting uh, to these digital experiences. All right. Francois, thank you. CEO of F5. Thank you. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
getting a gut check on box activist investor Starboard Value exiting its position in the company after losing a proxy battle last year. Box is up with the broader market today. And guys, we should also mention it's up about 44 percent just over the last 12 months. So it's one of these sort of software names, John, that hasn't seen a big sell off. Of course, it was a little bit late to it, which is what the activist investor wanted to push. But Aaron Levy able to do it sort of on his own and win that proxy battle. Yeah, I mean, how do you lose a proxy battle, Carl, without really losing the proxy battle? That might be how, right? <laughs> you, you, you get in the fight, you, you don't get what you want, maybe on paper, but you do get what you want out of the stock price, yeah. at least somewhat. Yeah, it's just one example of sort of how the environment has shifted and made investors a little more uh, aggressive in terms of trying to get uh, some capital return. Uh, D, we're going to be fascinated to see how that shakes out. By the way, uh, one more thing as far as tomorrow's goes, and we take a look ahead for some of the big tech earnings of the week. Airbnb, Roblox, Toast, all reporting today. And tomorrow we're going to hear from Airbnb co-founder and CEO Brian Chesky. He'll sit down with D, talk about those quarterly numbers. And then, of course, Shopify, DoorDash, NVIDIA on deck for tomorrow as well. Thursday, it's Palantir, Dropbox, and Roku. But uh, Airbnb is going to be fascinating, D. You know, Marriott was a big story today, yeah. talking about uh, people starting to get out and travel. Some, uh, some limitations in the number of new rooms that the industry has been able to build because of the uh, limitations on construction during COVID. Uh, of course, Airbnb supply is already built. That's the magic of their model. And that's also kind of the struggle, too, is keeping that supply high as you have more competitors in this market. John, Airbnb has just been such a fascinating story throughout the pandemic. Um, it's been able to benefit from the pandemic, some of that domestic travel, but also a reopening play. So as everything is relative, uh, Airbnb is awarded a much higher valuation than some of the OTAs and hotels. So it has to sort of stay ahead to keep that. And we are expecting a big number for booking. So we'll see if demand, travel demand has held up as well as those long-term stays, right? That's what Chesky he tells us all the time is that's the future of travel is that people are going to stay in one spot, work from home or from their Airbnbs, which he himself is doing at the moment. It's an important bellwether, especially in this economy as we look forward to warmer weather, uh, hopefully more opening back up. Uh, you know, I don't want to say post-COVID because you never know with these variants and whatnot what's happening, but perhaps a normalization in habits. But connected to that, also interested in hearing what Toast has to say their IPO not too long ago back in the fall. And of course, restaurant software, Carl, they've got to have visibility into uh, the higher input costs, also the impact of labor shortages and those questions about how people are going to be perhaps coming back or when people will be coming back to restaurants in greater numbers. Yeah. And as for Roblox, we just mentioned on Friday, guys, during a tech check about the new relationship with the NFL, what the metaverse is going to mean for football over the long term, how much that's going to drive John crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's all coming up uh, later in the week. For now, though, uh, session highs. NASDAQ gain is better than 2%. Time for Melissa Lee in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.